and the hope that you provide. Welcome to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. Today we're going to talk about striving and ego and non-attachment and responsibility and spiritual bypassing and Santosha, all in the name of better understanding. The second of the Niyamas, that Santosha, contentment. Contentment doesn't mean bliss. It doesn't mean happiness. It doesn't mean perfection. It also doesn't mean laziness or settling. It means being satisfied, seeing what is, accepting what is, and being satisfied and content with it. There are a couple of different challenges here. One is that it's the American way not to be satisfied with what you've got. Striving, climbing the ladder, moving up, making better, getting more, doing better. It's intercultural DNA. It's human, in fact. It's how we survive. Does Santosha mean we stop striving? And what about systematic oppression and moral wrongs? Do we sit back and just let things happen? Let the world spin off its axis into nuclear annihilation? Let the shootings continue? Let the harassment continue? Because we're supposed to just be content with whatever is? Because that seems like a bunch of bullshit. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's step back for a little background. Santosha is the second of the niyamas, the observances, in the eight-limbed path of yoga. And Santosha, again, refers to contentment. Two of the eight limbs of yoga are yama and niyama. Yama deals with ethical standards, focusing on behavior and how we conduct ourselves with other people in the outside world. The niyamas focus on how you treat yourself. These are more about self-discipline. There are five of them. There are Saucha, which we talked about last month. That was episode 73, Sanskrit for purity. Santosha, we'll talk about today, contentment. Tapas, tiny plates, just kidding, self-discipline. Svadhyaya, my favorite one to say, self-study. And Ishvara Pranidhana, just surrender to a higher source. So what do you think of when you hear the term content? For me, for a long time, it sounded like giving up. It's sometimes used in that way with this subtle hint of judgment. Why didn't Roger go for that promotion? Well, he's content to leave at five o'clock and never get ahead in this world. I don't know who Roger is or who in the world leaves work at five o'clock, but you see what I'm getting at. Don't you want to go out and achieve X, Y, Z? No, I'm content to stay home and water the plants. For a long time, that sounded like it should be the wrong answer. No, we should not be content because that meant we were not trying. We were not working hard enough. We were not achieving enough. Contentment, when looked at this way, could be seen as settling. Settling for what you have and not trying to advance, not trying to better yourself, not trying to advocate for yourself. He's content to sit on the couch, frittering his life away while Roger is out there in the world kicking ass. And when it comes to a more wellness-focused practice, then the concept or the definition of contentment shifts. Contentment itself is a goal, but how do we achieve it? 
because we live in a world where striving is expected to a certain extent. If we work hard, we can get what we want, what we deserve. I see it, I want it, I dream it, I work hard, I'll grind till I own it. Thank you, and forgive me, Beyonce. In some ways, we're not raised for contentment. We must instead strive to reach our potential, whatever that looks like. And now, I think the generation coming up isn't just worried about their own personal potential, they're worried about saving the world, They have to work hard to achieve not just a promotion, but social justice. How could they possibly be content with the world we've left them when what we experience is climate change, increased economic inequality, mass shootings? The weight of the world is on their shoulders, and we're talking about contentment? What the hell? I mean, bring it up with Patanjali, man. Is Santosha just some kind of brainwashing trying to tell us to stop making a fuss and be satisfied with what we have? Because that feels awfully oppressive. But of course, that's not what Santosha is. Santosha is more concerned with finding peace in the moment. And then what you do with that peace is another thing altogether. You could choose to find peace and then keep sitting in meditation until you ascend, or you could find some peace, act from that place to right injustices, get back on the mat or the cushion for some more and continue on repeat. Classically, Santosha is connected to viragya, meaning non-attachment. We as humans have a tendency to look outside of ourselves for satisfaction and validation. And we also wait for some achievement, some validation before we feel we can be happy or content or satisfied or even just be me, be ourselves. I I think it's very common, whether it's conscious or subconscious, for people to think I'll be more comfortable with myself or I'll be really truly myself when I remove these obstacles, when I get this thing, when I lose 10 pounds, when I get a better job, when I pay these bills, when I do side crow. Our validation is attached often to achievement. But the fact is, we are who we are without being able to do an advanced yoga posture. We are the same person before and after we pay our bills. This isn't to say, don't strive for betterment. Go for it. But you know you're the same person whether you have that thing or not, whether you achieve that goal or not. It doesn't make you more you find peace and acceptance with who you are right now, and then move on from there. I want to pause quickly to say thank you, as I always do, for listening to Yoga for the Revolution. If you haven't already, you can subscribe, all the podcasty places, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Overcast, all the casts. I would love it if you guys wanted to rate the show. We've been getting some pretty fun reviews in, so please keep them coming. You can always find all our back and future episodes on yogafortherevolution.org. Go there and go to contact to sign up for the newsletter. And that goes out about once a month. It'll fill you in on anything you missed on the show, as well as let you know of any workshops, live events I'm doing like the back-to-back energy workshops I'm leading May 19th and 20th here in New York. You can also see all that stuff on Facebook 
at facebook.com slash yoga for the revolution. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about wild, wild country and the two episodes of the conversation I had with Carol Horton. Did you think there's some value in the teachings? Should we completely erase any positive outcome based on the criminal activity? I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. Uh, Some people have already responded or are writing to me directly. You know, if you want to make any kind of public question and ask people's opinions, Facebook could be a great place to do that. You can also do that on Twitter. Uh, Yoga for the Revolution is Y underscore F underscore T underscore R. I'm on all the social media places. I hope you're satisfied. Speaking of social media and satisfaction, actually, social media is the perfect manifestation or the perfect challenge to Santosha. Almost pure id, social media is a bubbling brook of infantile and immediate reaction almost unconsciously tapping into our pleasure centers and fears. And that's what our social feeds do. They feed our most basic instincts for pleasure and non-pleasure. Articles on social media, you know, when you come through an article on Twitter, it's not presented for thoughtful consideration. It's a headline, a thumb-stopping phrase specifically designed to provoke The goal is to get at the subconscious or the unconscious mind. The goal is not to appeal to thoughtful, considered, discerning aspects of our intellect. The internet is for selling products or ideas. And it moves so quickly that in order to successfully sell, it must be provocative. And to be provocative, it must counter Santosha. It must challenge the notion that you are enough and that you have enough. I know I get down on social media. I'm on social media, but please don't think I'm exaggerating. Here's an example. I worked, albeit very briefly, before I was able to make a different decision, but I worked on a product that was selling, I don't want to be too specific, but selling security, right, in some manner, selling protection for money, personal information, And the strategies to sell that product included tapping into people's fear in order to convince them they needed protection. Like written down on a piece of paper, the goal was to stir up feelings of fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the audience in order to disturb any sense of Santosha, that of course was not on the piece of paper, in order to provoke an id response, an immediate reptilian-brained response. So... If you wonder why I left advertising full-time, it's stuff like this. And even when, even when the goals are not so transparent, the way we use social media accomplishes the same goals. Have you ever heard the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy? That's a little gem from the colonel, Theodore Roosevelt, by the way, who happens to be a super good example of never being satisfied. What else is Facebook for, Instagram, Pinterest, whatever, than to show you the idealized lives of your peers, their successes, their workout routines or smoothie bowls, their families, and here's a twist, even their political positions. So it's no spoiler that social media is full of political opinions, but here's one way that that weaves into this conversation about Santosha. And we touched on this just a little bit earlier. Shouldn't we, considering the deepening inequalities of our world, shouldn't we not be satisfied? 
isn't it shitty to say to someone, of course you live in a system that makes it more difficult for you to get ahead. And yes, there's an odds on chance someone you know will be shot for no reason, but let's rise above our desires and be content with what is. To me, that is an extremely dangerous line of thinking. And I don't think anyone is exactly saying those words without irony, but that message comes through pretty loud and clear. It is in some ways what the North American yoga machine is guilty of, something which I've heard called spiritual bypassing. Classically, spiritual bypassing is is spiritual practice in the service of repression. And more recently, the phrase has been used not just to talk about spiritual practice in the service of repression of our own personal emotions, but oppression uh, in the service of keeping negative feelings away and off the playing field altogether, whether they come from self or others. And this is when self-care becomes just checking out, self-preservation, a defense mechanism. So let's take a moment to talk a little bit more about spiritual bypassing. It's a phrase that's come up a lot in my circles of late. I don't know if many of you have heard it, talked about it, are annoyed by it already. It is a term coined really in the early 80s by a psychologist named John Wellwood. And he refers to the use of spiritual practices and beliefs to avoid dealing with uncomfortable feelings. In this conversation, it can be helpful to think of it as hiding behind kind of a spiritual veil of beliefs and practices. And if we're not careful, Santosha can become that veil, right? This is the veil of good vibes only that I feel is so, so dangerous. We cannot blind ourselves to the negative aspect of our world in the name of Santosha or of spiritual growth in general. I'm going to link to an article in the show notes uh, that I read on a site called Uplift. They quote a teacher and author, Robert Augustus Masters. He says, spiritual bypassing, and here's the quote, not only distances us from our pain and difficult personal issues, then I editorial note by me, not just personal issues, but community issues, not only distances us from our pain and difficult issues, but also from our own authentic spirituality, stranding us in a metaphysical limbo, a zone of exaggerated gentleness, niceness, and superficiality. I'm going to continue quoting Masters here because I think what he says is spot on. Uh, Masters wrote a book called Spiritual Bypassing, with a subhead uh, subtitle, When Spirituality Disconnects Us from What Really Matters. And he says, aspects of spiritual bypassing include exaggerated detachment, emotional numbing and repression, overemphasis on the positive, anger phobia, blind or overly tolerant compassion, weak or too porous boundaries, lopsided development, cognitive intelligence often being far ahead of emotional and moral intelligence, debilitating judgment about one's negativity or shadow side, devaluation of the personal relative to the spiritual, and delusions of having arrived at a higher level of being. I specifically want to point out anger phobia especially in the world where we live today. There is a lot to be angry about. 
I know personally myself, I won't project on everyone listening, myself, I'm not comfortable with anger, whether it comes from myself or other people. I judge someone's worthiness based on how well they can articulate their point and articulate it in a way that is calm, clear, concise, well thought out, right? And devoid of emotion in a way. And so I'm not saying that's right. What I'm saying is like, that's something I have to deal with because I feel like discourse should, quote unquote, should happen like debate club. And that's not reality. And this anger phobia has a way of devaluing other people, devaluing people with really strong emotions, devaluing people who have something to say and are saying it in a way that is uncomfortable to me. And I see this happening a lot in mixed race conversations. And some of it is cultural, some of it is not, you know, some of it is just simply anger phobia, you know, that again, I'm, I'm treading carefully here. I can only speak to my own experience and what I've witnessed. There is a thing called white tears. There is a thing called uh, centering one's self that I feel like white people, we have to be really careful about making every experience about our feelings and not other people's feelings. But I've seen it happen where someone of color will say something and then a white person will feel attacked by that and then make the whole conversation about that attack. To me, that's a good example of this anger phobia. So whether you're raised, you know, Catholic and you have politeness guilt or you have like Puritan New England roots running through you or, you know, wherever it's coming from, a lot of people have this, this politeness leaning and, and I do too. And I, and I don't think it's wrong, right? Like I really do think it would be great if we could all be nice to each other. However, at the same time, there's a difference between true kindness and and overly tolerant niceness. Let me go to like an ex- ex- completely extreme nonsensical place with it. Okay, someone has something in their teeth. You don't want to tell them because it's not nice to embarrass someone. And yet by not saying anything, they're walking around with food in their teeth, right? Which could potentially be worse. So I think that, again, I'm taking it totally to a place that no one can attach emotion to, to make a point of it and then bring it back to say, sometimes we may see injustice, but we are so concerned with being polite and nice that we don't speak out. We are so concerned. We are so anger phobic that we can't hear arguments that are full of anger and we can't be angry or express emotions in a really forceful way because we've been taught it's not constructive to do so. So again, I'm bringing this all back to spiritual bypassing and Santosha because I think that, and again, I'll get into this a little bit more detail in just a second, but I think it's really important to look at anger phobia and to look at our judgments around the way emotions are expressed whether that comes from right a more Puritan upbringing or whether it comes from our training in wellness and health and just look at it. Be aware of it as you start approaching what your spirituality is. Are you 
shunning negativity because it's real and uncomfortable to deal with. You know what I mean? Like, is it, you can't just ignore what's negative. You, you do still have to look at it if, if you want to move forward. So let me just dig back into this here. Contentment, Santosha, right? It's not about dodging the uncomfortable or, you know, putting your head in the sand. It's not about ignoring injustice or legitimizing oppression in any way. Uh, there's a psychologist, Ingrid Matthew. She talks about this as well. And again, I'll link to this article I'm referencing so you can dive a little bit deeper into this if you want to. She says that spiritual bypass is a defense mechanism, right? I knew when I started bringing in more experts, I could articulate this a little bit better. Here's what she says. Spiritual bypass shields us from truth. It disconnects us from our feelings and helps us avoid the big picture. It's more about checking out than checking in. And the difference is so subtle that we usually don't even know we are doing it. Thank you. We come to the table at this point with certain personal and cultural baggage, regardless of our intentions to travel through life with non-attachment or being in the moment or being kind or whatever your intentions are. The fact of the matter is we don't live in a bubble. For all the talk of the bubble, we live in the world. And by choosing, however subtly, however unconsciously, to ignore darkness, we are doing just that, ignoring it. It doesn't make it go away. Ignoring it simply means we're not taking action to change it. Do you see where I'm going here with this? For a lot of the spirituality we work with, meaning a lot of Western come Eastern philosophy, we're just not, we're not deeply educated. Everything comes through translations. Someone studied deeply and then wrote a book. And then someone else read that book and then made an Instagram post about it. And then that's how our spiritual lessons are often delivered to us. So things get watered down. It's easy to see how a concept like Santosha could turn into a concept like good vibes only. It requires us to look a little bit deeper and not simply ignore what's uncomfortable for the sake of contentment or for the sake of spirituality. So let's take, for example, something I consider to be a deeply complex truth of a relatively simple statement or belief like basic goodness. At least I, I still find it to be complex. I get the impression that people who have sat with the concept of basic goodness for longer than I have may find it to be more of just a core truth. I am still wrapping my head around it. Okay, but basic goodness, uh, it's a term used by a Tibetan teacher. And again, I do most of my education through reading, so my pronunciation may not be fully accurate. I apologize for that. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche is used to describe both the experience of reality. The phrase basic goodness is used to describe both the experience of reality and also basic human virtue, right? Like the personal wholeness and wholesomeness of each human. And also the accepting, there's that Santosha related word again, the accepting that the nature of reality is basically good, right? Not like all good, not good vibes only, but that whatever there is, is good just by the very fact of it existing. Okay, so again, this is a concept I'm still working on, really grasping for myself. And I think really 
it is what Santosha is all about. Well, the concept of basic goodness posits that reality is basically good. What it's not saying is only good vibes are allowed here. Does that make sense? I'm going to pull from an article on Lion's Roar published in, uh, let me look, 94, where they quote Chogyam Trungpa. I'm putting this in the show notes. Here's the quote. If we are willing to take an unbiased look, we will find that in spite of all of our problems and confusion, all our emotional and psychological ups and downs, there is something basically good about our existence as human beings. Unless we can discover that ground of goodness in our own lives, we cannot hope to improve the lives of others. If we are simply miserable and wretched beings, how could we possibly imagine, let alone realize, an enlightened society? A lot, a lot, a lot to unpack there. And where we start, start to talk about action. We talked about how there's a danger of misinterpretation of Santosha to say, if everything is hunky-dory as it is, then we have no responsibility to change it. And if striving is ego-driven and negative, then we shouldn't change it. But what's being offered here is there are problems and confusion. There is darkness and wrong. But at the core of our existence is this nugget of unbiased goodness. And we know it's there because we can imagine a better world. Carol Horton made a really brilliant point last week on the show. She said, and I'm paraphrasing here, so forgive me, but she said, there is no study that shows if we focus only on the cruel and ugly and angry, if we focus on you know, only the negative aggressively, that we'll be better for it. In a way, she was cautioning against an overcorrection to a morbidly dark place full of horrible streams of graphic reality without any uplift or compassion, right? Like Fox News. That Fox News part was my addition, not hers. Ideally, we can find a way not to run from the shadow stuff, not to ignore it or hide from it or om shanti our way through it, to, to see the shadow stuff. But then instead of diving into it head first, like in more fear-mongering strategies, we could look for balance, right? Carol Horton's argument was to shift the focus from North American spirituality, from a search for purity towards a search for balance. So how do we cultivate the sense of contentment without hiding from the things which would disturb it? We could start by practicing being still, observing, not changing anything. I don't know how many of you have a meditation practice or have tried meditation and then maybe fallen off the cushion, so to speak. But here's something I find fascinating about the practice, about my practice. I'm very much a beginner. And when I sit, I am constantly confronted with the desire to change something, anything, to change how I'm sitting, where I'm sitting, to close a window or open a window, to shut off some electronic thing or move something that's distracting me. I'm just looking around to judge something and change it. It's as if in that moment, it is my whole job on the planet to be some kind of weird front of house person at an event that's about to take place in front of my meditation seat in five minutes and everyone's about to show up. So I better go ahead and fix everything right now. So it's perfect. And then I can meditate in peace. 
Has anyone had a similar experience? I feel like this is just the perfect microcosm of life. I have to take care of all these things on the to-do list and then I can stop and smell the roses. I have to make sure I'm at inbox zero and then I can feel the cool breeze on my skin. I have to perfect my sun salutation, sweat out all my sins, and then, only then, can I enjoy Shavasana. But what if Santosha were not about enjoying something or noticing something only when you deserve to notice it, but just like any time at all? The light has been really beautiful lately, and sometimes I work from home, and I'll stop and look up and I will admit, I goofily walk around my little apartment looking at the ways the light hits the wall or the plants or whatever. Does that mean I'm more enlightened than anyone? No. It just means that every once in a while, I remember that there is beauty in the world, and that is good. There is beauty and goodness in the world, and I don't have to work to deserve it. It's just there and I can appreciate it. It also doesn't mean that I should never work towards anything and I should just sit and stare at the wall and watch how the light shifts forever, right? I mean, I think that that's a lovely practice to have, but it doesn't really help the world if I do that forever. At some point, you know, getting up and getting into action could be helpful. It also doesn't mean that I need more of that moment than I have that I need more windows, more light. I can just sit in that one moment, love the light that shines through, and when the sun shifts, it passes, and then it's gone, and that's it. All right, find your breath. Exhale all the air out. Take another breath in and exhale. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, breathe a few breaths here and just notice. Notice what? Anything. Just notice it and know you don't have to change it right this second. I want to end with another quote by Chogyam Trumpa from a book, Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. It's not just an arbitrary idea that the world is good but it is good because we can experience its goodness. We can experience our world as healthy and straightforward, direct and real, because our basic nature is to go along with the goodness of situations. The human potential for intelligence and dignity is attuned to experiencing the brilliance of the bright blue sky, the freshness of green fields, and the beauty of the trees and mountains. We have an actual connection to reality that can wake us up and make us feel basically, fundamentally good. Shambhala Vision is tuning in to our ability to wake ourselves up and recognize that goodness can happen to us. In fact, it is happening already. To bring that back to our conversation about the Niyama Santosha, Santosha is not another goal to achieve. It's happening already. It's here. Breathe it in. Until next time, keep breathing and live to fight another day.